Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to Culture Lab from New Scientist Podcasts. This is the show where we feature science-adjacent and science-influenced stuff in the world of culture. I'm culture and comment editor Alison Flood, and I'm speaking to composer Sarah Anglis. Sarah has written a new opera called Giant, which is based on the true story of the 18th century Irish giant Charles Byrne, who had an undiagnosed benign tumour of his pituitary gland, which caused him to grow to be 2.31 metres tall. Byrne's corpse was stolen and later put on public display by the surgeon John Hunter, despite his explicit wishes to be buried at sea. Giant premieres in June at the Albra Festival, 240 years after Byrne's death. Sarah, Charles Byrne's skeleton was on display in the Hunterian Museum until 2016 when it closed for refurbishment. Did you view it there yourself and is that what started you down this road? Yes, I mean, I think I've seen Burns Skeleton twice. The first time, it was it must have been like 15, 20 years ago, and a friend of mine was the chief curator at the time. Simon Chaplin was the chief curator, and he just invited me in for a tour because I used to work at the Science Museum a million years ago. And it was there, and it wasn't in its sort of last configuration. It was in a sort of fairly old-school, sort of-looking 1950s-looking museum case, and there he was. And I just did like every other visitor. I gawped at him. I thought, oh, my goodness, look at that skeleton. And then Simon told me the backstory about how this man was on display and it was the exact opposite of what he had wanted. And I was just absolutely haunted by that, the fact that, that this was a person who had made very express wishes about how they wanted to be treated in dignity after death. And there he was, and we were all gawping at him. And I, I, and if Simon hadn't told me the story, I probably wouldn't have looked closely enough at the label, if there was even a label at that time, to say this. And then I went back a few years later to look at the gallery because they'd updated it, and I was just curious to see it. And it was called the Crystal Gallery. And it was an absolutely gorgeous-looking piece of you know gallery. But I was really disturbed by it because they had these sort of big, crystal cases all the way down the hall with all these specimens in them, which, you know, if you're into anatomy and physiology or just interested, you know, they're absolutely fascinating, but they're all full of um, specimens and many of them are human specimens. And, you know, you'll see things like, I don't know, quintuplets that have all miscarried and things like that. And you're looking at them and thinking, yeah, this is really fascinating and I can see why somebody, an anatomist or a doctor would be interested to see these, but every single one of these is a human tragedy. Every single one of these is a story. How did that end up in there? You know, what, what was the story there? And then at the far end of the gallery, and the gallery was sort of configured, so it was literally like at the altar of a church, was Burn again, the most prominent thing in the gallery, his skeleton, and above him was a bust of John Hunter. And I thought, yeah, I feel really uneasy being here right now. 
what 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 is the message? What what are we saying here? And then I was just haunted by the whole experience. And funnily enough, I was doing an album in about just before the pandemic, maybe two years before the pandemic, about London. It was called Ealing Feeder. It was just looking at what I'd call sort of deep time in London, like lots of stories from London and lots of folkloric stuff to do with London. And I was just looking at stories. There's this really brilliant book called Magic in Modern London that was written in the 1930s where an ethnographer went around the East End, particularly like the docks and things, and looked for what he called extant magic, where you think magic is no longer with us, but people are still involved in magical practices. Like one was, for example, was the submariners were putting a call, as in an amniotic sack, in a pendant. So I, I was going to do a track on this album called Charles Burley's Dreaming, and it was just going to be a very impressionistic thing about Burn leaving the museum and getting on the train to Margate and sort of walking out into the sea, because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be buried at sea in Margate. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'm going I'm to do an album track about that. And then as I started to play around with the idea, I thought, well, actually, no, this is... This could be three tracks, or, or no, it could be an album. And then, or no, I think I want this staged, actually. And well, I don't know, how the hell would you stage this? And then I do work in theatre as well, so I'm sort of quite into thinking about staging, as in I, I, I write music and do sound design for theatre. And then um, this call-out came from the Jerwood Foundation and what is now Britain Peers Arts. And it was for people that have never written an opera before to make a proposal I thought, oh, how hard can it be? Turns out it's very hard. I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? This would be a fantastic opera because it's got all the ingredients for a really good opera because it's got a very, very stark, clear, broad brushstroke story. But at the same time, and it's very character-driven because you've got these two men. You've got Byrne, whose body it was, and you've got Hunter, the surgeon and physiologist and anatomist, who was on a mission. You know, he really, really was wanting to save lives. That's why he was doing basically what, what Hunter did and many of his contemporaries did, of course, was that they they were involved in body snatching, stealing dead bodies, arranging for them to be stolen to order. And Byrne was just one of these cases. But then, then there's all these ambiguities, like did Hunter cross a line from medical inquiry and almost become a trophy hunter? And he's clearly not a baddie because, you know, we're all benefiting from Hunter's work. And we're all complicit because we're all kind of involved in that body. You know, we're all complicit. You know, we all, we're all dealing with the outcome of the body snatching and we're thankful for it. And also I'm complicit because I went to Gorp at Burn, not knowing the story. And so that was basically, I thought, oh, this is really good material because it's got ambiguity in it. It's very much a human-based story. but it's And also at the middle, there's un, this undeniable gothic horror, which is somebody stealing your body and boiling it. And when you explicitly gone to huge steps not to let that happen and I thought oh yeah so that's what that's that was the starting point and yeah. then there's a couple of other operas that were touchstones for it like there's a very well-known 18th century opera called beautiful opera Venus and Adonis written by John Blow it's an English opera it's not as well known as um the Purcell opera Dido and Aeneas but Venus and Adonis at the end it has this absolutely exquisite funeral music and when you see it it's often performed with um a funeral procession and I kept thinking oh I'd love to give Byrne a funeral procession of some kind in this opera, and that's what we do. But we also tell the story, so it's a, it's a way that we do it that you also find that the people at the funeral are being duped because they're putting a coffin in the sea that is full of rocks, which is what we understood most likely happened. 
Can we go back a bit? Can you just sort of briefly tell me the, the story of Byrne and his, yes. his, his life? Yeah, so Byrne was born in the 18th century in Ireland and just because of fluke of a genetic, um, particular genetic mutation, he grew extraordinarily tall. And in fact, we now know that there's a family line that's still going actually where people are being have this genetic, particular genetic manifestation and are still to this day, there's giants in that family line. So anyway, so, so he came to London as a very tall man and I suppose you could say he became a piece of living art. He, he kind of made his money by exhibiting himself and people would come see him. He probably told them stories about giants and such like and they probably inquired all sorts of quite prurient inquiries about him and would just literally gawp at him in life. And yet and he, and he, for a while he did quite well. But, um, of course, by the, he, he died really, really young from this pituitary tumour. And what was actually going on was that he was still growing. So he was just getting... He was probably in a lot of pain and he was probably pretty disabled towards the end of his life. And he was also self, as we understand, he was probably self-medicating with thing, with alcohol, maybe laudanum as well, but certainly alcohol. And he, he feared a particular fate because of his body, which was that he would end up one of the many people who ended up on the anatomy table as what they, in those days they called an otomy. An otomy was where typically your bones were stripped and you were opened up for public display and it was a particularly cruel thing because it was it wasn't like today where you you know you hand your body over to science it was something that judges would sort of meet out at that stage so there, there was there was a whole illegal thing going on the body snatching you know which would go on like where they'd get bodies to order for places like guys hospital and such like but then also judges would kind of feed the anatomists need for bodies by dishing out optimization as a particularly sort of cruel and humiliating punishment you know like if you were a really nasty murderer they'd otomize you and people would literally there'd be there'd be sort of scientific inquiry but people would gawp at you you know it'd be a nasty nasty thing and so he he was fear he was fearful of it probably because he was catholic and he had certain beliefs about the body needing to be whole but also because it felt like a a thing that would happen as a sort of shame if he feel shameful and so burn as we understand it went to great lengths to avoid the body snatches. And what he did was he saved up money, paid some undertakers and arranged with his friends. This is what we understand. And some of this is conjecture and some of it is, is documented. And it's one of these sort of strange stories where you can never quite unpick where one ends and the other begins. But as we understand it, he saved up money to be put in a lead-lined coffin and taken to Margate and be dropped in the sea. So he'd never, ever be found by the body snatchers. But actually, the surgeon, John Hunter, we don't know whether he saw, it was very likely that he saw him because he became interested in his body, interested enough to get one of his assistants to pretty much have sort of death watch on Byrne as he was dying and intercept the coffin and probably, it was probably all about bribes, bribing the undertakers and took the body and he did it illicitly and he, he so illicitly that unusually for Hunter, he kind of messed it up. He, he singed the bones as he boiled the body to extract them. He then kept the body on display, also hidden, for quite a long time. And then he started sending these sort of vanity teaser letters to his friends. I can't remember the exact words, but they were things like, I have a tall man, I can't wait for you to meet him. And things oh like gosh, that. how creepy. Yeah, yeah. Then when Joshua Reynolds painted his portrait, and you can see it online if you look. If you look, there's a couple of legs in, hanging down in the corner. And those are the legs of Byrne. So it was like lots of little hints that he had something yeah. rather special in his cupboard. And eventually got put on display. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. There's so much drama and intrigue and, and tragedy and kind of skullduggery in, in this story. I know that Hilary Mantel has already turned it into a novel. Why did yeah, you feel... a beautiful novel, yes. Why yeah. did you feel an opera was a way to tell the story? Well, I suppose I'm a musician, and that's so number one. And also because um, I think opera's really good at doing subtext. I think what opera can do is like music can do subtext, so you can tell a story that's bobbing along on a certain level, and then the, the way that the music takes a turn, or sort of tonality of the music you can suggest ambiguity and you can suggest something very unpleasant or queasy afoot. And I think I was just interested in exploring the form as a composer. It's like a thing you always want to do. And I thought, you know, this is a really, really good story for an opera. And I'm surprised it hasn't been done before. Maybe it hasn't. We've missed it. Tell, tell me about the music and, and what you did to evoke the 18th century. I've got a bit of a strange background because I've got a technical background. In fact, my first degree was in engineering electroacoustics at Salford but I also have a classical music background and I specialised in Baroque and Renaissance music. So this is a gift to me, this story, because it's set in the 18th century, slightly later than Baroque, but nevertheless 18th century. And so, yes, I'm using a lot of 18th century instruments in it. So we've got the viola da gamba, which is this beautiful fretted instrument that you kind of bow. For those that don't know the gamba, if you looked at it from a distance, you think it was a cello, but actually... It's more like a sort of bowed lute. It's like a low fretted instrument that you bow and it's got a very mournful sound. And in fact, the gamba has very often been used in pieces. There were the things called the tombo, which were the tomb pieces. And so it's always been sort of associated with mourning and the tomb. So it's kind of really natural to put the gamba in it. And then the recorder, because obviously that's an 18th century instrument. And also that can enable us to sort of touch on the folkloric as well, because we can play it a bit like a what you call a low flute, an Irish low flute. And then sort of violins and a very sort of jangly Renaissance instrument called a clavicimbalum, which um, is like a very early precursor to the harpsichord or spinet. And that's very, very jangly. And these instruments have a very, and lots of handbells. Um, those have come from the Whitechapel Foundry, which feels sort of appropriate. The Whitechapel Foundry is a very well-known old foundry in London that used to make bells. And then... Um, I'm using a lot of live electronics. So it's not like um, where you're hearing live instruments and then it's like cue the tape, some electronics comes in. 
it's that the electronics is being used. So I'm using a thing called Max MSP, which for those who are into the tech is a graphical sound programming language that I use. And what it enables me to do is manipulate things in real time. So when you hear a gamba, it kind of play an expression. You might then hear it a very sort of ghostly repeat of it stretched and reversed in real time. And so what that enables me to do, it enables me to sort of tease out the sort of timbres of these instruments. And and again, for those of you who are in and sort of uh, sort of interrogate these sort of inner world of these sounds. So I suppose quite I mean I would say my music's quite simple harmonically. And it's more about spectrally what it's doing. And in fact, I use, you know, what it's doing, like the sort of the timbres and things. And actually I do again, because it's a new scientist, I'm sure people would be interested to know. I do what's known as spectralism in a lot of my work, where I I examine the spectra of sounds and then think about the you know, and obviously every sound has its own sort of harmonic content, and then thinking of other instruments that can use that harmonic content in a new way. So you get all these sort of sounds that don't sound like they belong together, but then somehow all gel because they're all it's like spectral composition, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds fantastic. I can't wait to to hear it. And you worked with the poet Ross Sutherland, is that yes, right? He, he wrote the words. Brilliant. Yeah. So I saw him do this thing called Stand By for Tape Backup, and it was so good. And it was where he started. He started this poem about finding an old VHS tape that his granddad had, and it had all the stuff that he'd sort of taped and then got a bit of, and then taped the next bit, you know, from the TV in the eighties. And then he just sort of started to do this really, really moving poem about sort of existential dread and other things all from this tape and it was so clever and I thought oh yeah he would be perfect and also he kind of writes in quite a sort of gutsy way and we wanted it to feel sort of not flowery but sort of Londony and he's not from London but he kind of writes in a sort of gutsy sort of way and we wanted it to feel sort of kind of slightly grounded if that makes sense. Yeah absolutely and do, does your opera make a judgment on Hunter's actions or do you leave that for the further We've Listen. very carefully left that to the audience. I mean, and as far as I'm concerned, there are no absolutes. I mean, I have certain feelings about the way he was treated. The postscript is more complicated, but I'm interested in there not being any absolutes and that you, you we just tell the story truthfully. I think what's important is to be truthful and empathetic to both the main characters in the story yeah. and leave you to untangle it. What do you what do you think of the museum's decision, recent decision, not to display Burns' skeleton anymore? Well, having had that gut reaction to seeing him, not having him on display personally feels like a very big step in the right direction. This is my personal opinion because I can't justify my desire to be a voyeur, which is what I was. I can't justify that. When you get to the next question about should he be repatriated and or put in the sea then that becomes more complicated and that's so difficult to untangle because, you know, for example, there are descendants of Burton who themselves have the same genetic mutation and they're saying, no, we want you to keep the body because you might find something useful that could help my family, help me. And that's quite a strong case for keeping the, you know, keeping it in privately but keeping the, the remains. But then equally you could say, which is Thomas Mutzinger, is it? who's been writing papers on burn, he makes the point, well, yeah, but if you feel that strongly, then yeah, give your own body to science, but that doesn't give you the right to decide for somebody else. And that's very interesting, isn't it? Mm. Because yeah. it, basically we're using him as an instrument rather than a person. And then and then also part of me that, you know, I, I'm a heathen, I'm, I'm not Catholic or Christian, or I, I'm you know agnostic. 
And I think, well, he's dead, you know, what harm's it doing? But to me, it's more about, it also harms the living because this is where I feel very strongly about it is I think about, so there are two people in my family with profound disabilities. One actually, very sadly, who died in the pandemic and um, he lived all his life with a kind of disability where he would have ended up, he had, I'll tell you what he had, he had neurofibromatosis. So he had exactly the kind of disability where that could have been him in the case. And so I felt that quite keenly that please treat somebody with dignity, no matter how extraordinary you find their body. And then also when I think about a, a young lad in the family who's in his early 20s with profound disabilities, who's thriving and doing brilliantly, by the way, but it's like, um, I think, well, we can't have this hierarchy of consent. There either is consent or there isn't consent. And just because some somebody you find of interest, I, do, I don't understand. It's chauvinism to think that somebody has less right to autonomy over their body than another person. They don't. And, you know, personally, you know, I, you think, well, if, you know, so if, I, if I had an extraordinary body and somebody could find it useful medically... I wouldn't have any. I wouldn't have any bones. But no, I, I, I don't have any um, sentimentality about it. You know, take the lot. I don't care. But actually, if this person, very unusually in the era before consent, explicitly said that they didn't want this fate, I mean, it sort of has. Somebody mentioned that it had sort of fearful symmetries with the Alder Hay situation. You know, that this was a man who who was absolutely explicit what he wanted to happen, and he wasn't respected. So yeah. I still can't untangle whether they should finish the job and put him... I, I kind of want... In it. My heart says that they should do the decent thing and give him the burial that he wanted. But I am also prepared to be persuaded by the living relatives who say, oh, hang on a minute, dot, 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 you know. So it's difficult, mm. isn't it? What do you think Byrne would have thought of the fact that he has an opera about him? Oh, I don't now? know. I don't know. Well, I would hope that he would be flattered. <laughs> I mean, my main concern is actually how horrified he'd be about how we depict him because that was an issue. I mean... One thing, funnily enough, was when we started, the very original version didn't ever show him at all because I kind of felt showing him was almost like an extension of the problem. But then we realised that we had an opera where nobody knew what the hell was going on. <laughs> so that that was swiftly dispensed with. And, um, well, I would hope he would feel flattered and I hope he, more than anything, Bern and Hunter, I would feel we'd been successful, not if we hold particular we gave a certain line i would feel we were successful if both main protagonists felt understood excellent well thank you so much for chatting to us sarah that was sarah anglis whose opera giant premieres in june thanks for listening to this episode of culture lab from new scientist podcasts if you enjoyed this do subscribe to our show so you don't miss out on all our content bye for now This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.